Welcome to podcast 106 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Fazy, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. Now, today promises to be fun because we're going to be talking about the great P.G. Woodhouse and we hope you're going to find out a lot you might not have known about him. William Humble has written a new one-man play called Woodhouse in Wonderland, starring Robert Dawes as P.G. or Plum Woodhouse in this one-man show, and it's touring Britain until the end of April. Apart from Jeeves and Worcester, you'll have seen Robert Dawes in many TV dramas like Casualty, Midsummer Murders, Poldark, Father Brown, and this summer he'll be in a new BBC series, The Sister Boniface Mysteries. He's just played the leading role opposite Elizabeth Hurley and Tara Fitzgerald in the movie The Piper, but his real love is the theatre, and he's done lots and lots of it, as well as taking on numerous radio roles. Now, Bill Humble has written numerous highly acclaimed films for television, including On Giant Shoulders for the BBC with Judi Dench, which won an Emmy, and the BAFTA-nominated Hancock, starring Alfred Molina. He's well, done there's a been mass- a BAFTA-nominated film about Matthew Hancock. Uh, not Matthew Hancock! <laughs> Ed! <laughs> My God! <laughs> not Ma- <laughs> I don't- Carry on. Carry on, That's Carl. a hilarious I'm, I'm idea. Um, uh, he's also done a matter series for ITV, including An Unsuitable Job for a Woman, P.D. James's oh, yes. The Black Tower, and Mary Wesley's The Vacillations of Poppy Carew. The list goes on and on, but most recently his one-man stage play, The Performer, was broadcast on Radio 4 as a two-part drama with Stephen Fry. Well, I'm very impressed by that, isn't that CV, if no one else is. <laughs> yes. Well, I was about to say, after that ridiculously over-the-top introduction <laughs> to the very glittering careers of you both, we're honoured to have you with us. Good morning. Bob and Bill. <laughs> Good morning. Hi. 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 Let's start with you, Robert. You have a history with Woodhouse because you played the eccentric Tuppy Glossop in the hit TV series Jeeves and Worcester back in the 90s, which, of course, starred Stephen Fry and you, Laurie. Tell us about that. That was a, a, a wonderful opportunity, obviously. And Stephen is an encyclopedia about most things, uh, wonderfully so. Uh, but uh, in particular about P.G. Woodhouse, who he claims is his favourite writer, and uh, uh, and understandably so. Uh, so, yes, we had a wonderful time with that. I can remember sitting on the first day of, of what they call principal photography outside a, a stately pile in the Cotswolds. And Stephen and Fry had come down the, the night before, fresh from recording the very last episode of Black Adder, the iconic episode where Black Adder leads his men over into you know into battle, and they're all going to perish. Uh, and uh, before they knew it, they were back. You know, they were filming Jeeves and Worcester. And I sat there with Stephen, and I said, "Do you know I've been reading these books, and I, I love absolutely love them, but I can't really find a character description of Hildebrand." Tuppy Glossop. And Stephen said, well, no, Plum didn't really go overboard uh, with his uh, character um, descriptions. He said, but I think you'll find that there's one, I believe it's in the New York stories, where uh, Tuppy Glossop is described as being a bulldog who just had his dinner snitched. <laughs> and so that was it. I was up and running after that. And I'm very thankful for, for, for Stephen for sourcing that little bit of information about the character. I hadn't read any P.G. Woodhouse as a, as a child, and uh, a teenager, but in my last uh, year 
at uh, well, a few weeks before I left Rada at the age of uh, 19, I walked into the uh, into Rada and the doorman said, there's a, par, a big envelope for you over there in your cubby hole, uh, Bob. And so I went and got it and it was a, a note and a book from Tom Wilkinson, you know, the actor, wonderful actor who was directing at Rada that uh, particular term. And it, it was a copy of Wright... Uh, oh, Jews, uh, and a little note saying, um, Bob, I thought you might like to have this. I know you haven't read any P.G. Woodhouse, but I think you'll love this and hopefully um, you'll enjoy this book and, and many others. And that's sort of where it started, really. So I've got Tom Wilkinson to thank for my introduction to uh, P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, how brilliant. Now, now let's just uh, turn to you now, Bill, because the new play is set in Woodhouse's Long Island office in the 50s. So tell us about that, because he's actually, though he, we think he's the great, you know, chronicler of quintessential Englishness, at that time he was much more famous for, for all his Broadway stuff, wasn't he? He loved America. He, was, he loved England too, but he loved being in America. He loved the glamour of America, actually, the kind of myth of America. He was, uh, and, he, and he loved Broadway, and he was very, very stage struck. And at one time he had uh, five musicals going on Broadway, which is something. He was a lyricist for those musicals. And he uh, and uh, Guy Bolton and uh, Jerome Kern transformed the musical in America, in fact, in about 1917, 1920. And they made it something that was about a story more than songs and little funny acts. They, they, they made it into potential of, of drama in, in, in musicals. So in a way, they were the forefathers of the modern musical. When we see him in Long Island, he's, he's 70-ish. I always said to Bob, when we started doing this, by the time we get this done, you'll be as old as P.G. Woodhouse in the play. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting there. But Bob's still younger than me, unfortunately. But, you know, he's getting there. And in his 70s, in living in Long Island, uh, the book writer Guy Bolton, who he did these musicals with, lives nearby, and they adore each other. They're best friends. They go out for walks every afternoon with their Pekingese and, and plot the, the next shows they can do, although they're by that time rather too old to do the musicals. But they both were very, very stage-struck. Uh, but, but, but Plum, as he's called, because he was Plum, as he's known, he kept writing the books all the time. I associate P.G. Woodhouse completely with England, and I hadn't realised he'd written, you know, the, the lyrics for Anything Goes, for example. I mean, I just hadn't quite... I didn't just... know that either. It's he amazing, did the British it? version of Anything Goes. Cole Porter did the American version and he did the British version. He said his version was better, but Cole Porter <laughs> probably didn't agree. <laughs> but it's Cole, it's Cole Porter's version that is always triumphs. I mean, whenever you see Anything Goes revived, it's Cole Porter's version, not Woodhouse's version. Yeah. Well, right? he, he sings... He's Bob Plum Woodhouse sings uh, from Anything Goes... Uh, the. Plum's version during our show. Uh, so come and see it and you'll get P.G. Woodhouse's version of Anything Goes. Sadly, I haven't seen the play yet. The play delves into darker aspects of Woodhouse's life, doesn't it? Um, yeah. But you took the title from a, a lost diary he kept while in a Nazi internment camp. Tell us about that, Bill. Yeah. Yes, he was writing this diary and, and, people, and people advised him not to publish it. But I thought it's a wonderful title, actually, because he lived in his own... Wonderland. Well, he was falsely accused uh, of being a collaborator with the Germans uh, because he uh, wrote some funny pieces for CB CBS, wasn't it? And uh, he didn't realise that they were going to broadcast them uh, in, in Britain. And when they were broadcast in Britain, uh, everyone said he was a traitor. He wasn't a traitor. He was too naive to be a traitor. But it dogged him for years. Trouble is with P.G. Woodhouse, 
people now remember him too much for the German incident because it's kind of newsworthy rather than his wonderful writing and his, his actually kind of gentle but interesting life. But we don't know about it, do we, Ed? Well, well I mean, he, he was accused of... He wrote these little funny pieces which were broadcast uh, uh, on CBS to America and then to Britain, and... Uh, he hadn't realised that because of that, he would be accused of being a collaborator. There was nothing Why? Why, though? Why was... In, there was nothing pro-German in these pieces. They were funny little pieces about internment. But you mean he recorded them while he was in, interned in Berlin? He was interned well, intern for nearly a year, uh, 49 weeks, in fact, in different, different internment camps. He said it was quite fun. It was like being at Dulwich College. Um, and but uh, people was... presumably accused him of collaboration because he recorded them. Yeah, he was, he was, he was interned. That, but, the, but there was um, an inquiry uh, which actually cleared him of any involvement with anything. Um, uh, there was, so there was no evidence that there was any... He was too naive to collab. I mean, it's, it's kind of... I read a lot about Woodhouse, and it's just not true. Really, that uh, the, the reasons for doing them, I mean, he'd given a series of what he called funny talks to his fellow internees uh, when he was interned in uh, Tostin, Upper Silesia. And uh, somehow word of these got out and the German propaganda machine really um, went into action because they realised they had a, a, an international star um, there. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there was a big movement in America to actually get uh, Plum out of internment because he was coming up to 60. Um, and after the age of 60, he didn't have to be interned. And uh, he was persuaded by uh, various people uh, that by doing um, a broadcast to America for CBS, he'd have a chance to do which he'd not been able to do, which is write return letters from thousands and thousands of his American readers uh, who were sending him letters and food parcels and whatever. And he just thought it would just be a, a jolly way to thank uh, all those people in the States who had, uh, had supported him. And at that time, the USA was not in the war. They were a neutral neutral uh, uh, country. So he was, he persuaded himself naively, as Bill says, that this was going to be okay. But what he didn't realise, as, as has been mentioned, was that the Germans were going to broadcast it, transmit it to the United Kingdom. And of course, quite understandably, the furore and uh, response to that was intense. And it did dock him for the rest of his life. He paid a huge price for that um, exile, really, from the UK for many years, even though he'd been found uh, not guilty of those crimes. And, and eventually uh, he received a knighthood, which um, he took uh, understandably to be uh, a total clearance of, of any such uh, allegations. Uh, but it was just, just weeks before he died, wasn't it? Yeah, he yes. He was too very, early to very come late. back and, and get it. I've never, really, uh, never really fully understood the story. No, me neither. That's very illuminating. <laughs> no, but no, well, that's good. Interestingly, his, his, his knighthood, he, could, he was too frail uh, when he got his knighthood, so his publisher came out to Long Island um, uh, f uh, from uh, Manhattan, and they staged a sort of um, uh, a little ceremony <laughs> uh, of knighthood. So anyway, I think that meant an awful lot to him uh, at the end of his days and some validation. But he never went back, he never went back to Britain, which is a sadness. No. No, but the, the the thing is, that where is he continued. buried? Is he buried in America? 
Yes, yes, he's buried uh, in Remsenburg, um, in uh, in Long Island. You know, he never stopped writing, and this is the thing that the play's about, apart from the the, the music and and casting a light onto his uh, huge successes. As I think Andrew Lloyd Webber pointed out, um, if uh, Woodhouse had never written a single comic novel for which he is you know so famous worldwide, he would have been he would have been known for actually being one of the first the only person to have had five musicals on Broadway performing at the same time. And it also, Bill's managed to really just get to the heart of the man, I think, um, and also to explore how he managed to be uh, the great writer that he was, uh, and internationally known. I mean, he's still fantastically popular all over the world. Um, and how he managed to do this, and it was because he lived in a little bubble. The word naive has been used several times already, and that's entirely what he was. He could only write if he lived in a little bubble, and his wife, Ethel, protected him within this. He didn't like going out particularly. He didn't like socialising particularly. He just got up every morning, did his daily dozen at 7.30 sharp, sat down and worked to lunchtime, had an afternoon walk with his dogs, came back and had a delicious mar martini and a bath <laughs> and then worked through the evening. And he did that every single day of his you life. You told them the part of the play now. What's a daily dozen? The daily dozen was a, a, it was a sort of a... a, a, a uh, a, a regime that he'd uh, read about in Collier's Magazine, which is, uh, an, as you may know, an American pulp magazine uh, of, of, of the time. And it was a, a bizarre sort which he wrote for, and uh, which was a bizarre set of sort of stretches and toe touching, and uh, which sort of led to, well, certainly and the stage. Bob recreates this very, very amusingly on stage, among many yes. other things he achieved. Well, that was the biggest challenge, actually, Bill, actually me having to touch, <laughs> touch my toes. Um, so I, I don't thank you for that. So that's what that what he did, and he did it religiously. His self-discipline was quite extraordinary. Um, and as I say, it led to this extraordinary uh, output of, of, of work in novels, short stories, articles, serializations, and, of course, um, he, the lyrics for his, his, his many musicals. What I think is really interesting is if he spent so much time in America, who, what was the inspiration for Jeeves and Worcester, do we know? Uh, yes, it was very much uh, from his earlier days as a young man in London. And uh, there's a li little bit here, in a, sort, of a, sort of a preface that he wrote for, not a sort of, it is a preface, but it's not many people know it, where he describes what it was, the world of which I have been writing ever since I was so high, the world of the Drones Club and the lads who congregate there, exists uh, to uh, the east of St. James's Street on the west of Hyde Park Corner, by Oxford Street on the north and by Piccadilly on the south. And now it is not even small, it is non-existent, it has gone with the wind and is one with Nineveh and Tyre. In a word, it has had it. <laughs> and he knew this. And, but he wrote, even in the, in the 70s, when he was still writing, he never left that period from 1914. In fact, he described himself as an historical novelist, really, because that was the little bubble, the fantasy work. He said, I, I don't write about real life. A lot of writers dig deep, write about real life. I write about a fantasy. So Jeeves and Worcester weren't based on any actual characters, as far as you know. The world he, he took inspiration on rather than individuals. But Jeeves appeared to him when he was writing something. He, you know, he wrote him as a minor character, first of all. And what are the first lines? Because you say them in the play, Bob. The first lines that Jeeves... Uh, Mrs Gregson to see you, sir. 
<laughs> and the second one? Very good, sir. Which suit will you wear? <laughs> now, you both are absolute dyed-in-the-wool sort of P.G. Woodhouse fans and experts, but, and, but this play has been six years in the making and you two have been sort of collaborating on this this forever, haven't you? So, so tell us how it all came about. Bob and I first met, is this interesting, many, many years ago when, when he and a young director, he was young then, uh, <laughs> I was not quite so young, uh, wanted, me to, wanted me to adapt a television play I'd written about psychoanalysis, they could talk to me, wanted me to adapt it for the theatre. I just love writing the theatre, so I did. And they, amazingly, because it's so difficult to put plays on, I said, it took this play, it took six years, they managed to raise some money, uh, and they cast uh, a highly regarded actress, Alan Doby, as the analyst, and Bob played uh, the patient, uh, and they put it on, and we got, we got the lead review in the Sunday Times, actually. And then, then years later, he did another play of mine, Two-Hander, in Plymouth, and then, then he obviously got fed up with having other people in the cast, so he approached me with the idea of doing a one-man play. And I'd just been developing an idea for television about Pidgey Woodhouse. But then uh, someone else did a film about Pidgey Woodhouse. I thought, well, that, that's dead. But I was really into Pidgey Woodhouse at the time Bob approached me. And so it was wonderful timing. Who's written the best biography of Pidgey Woodhouse? I read uh, the Ronald McCrum for Book of Bedtime for Radio 4 uh, a few years back. And that's an extraordinarily fine biography. Um, Francis Donaldson's one is, 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 is very highly thought of. Although I think uh, the McCrum is, is the one that... Uh, uh, sort of comes to uh, comes to mind as as certainly the, the 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 latest. And you've had inquiries. You've had inquiries about taking the play to India. What is it? Do, do the Indians love P.G. Woodhouse? Oh, they're, yes, they're they're they they're mad keen, um, and and have been you know for 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 decades and decades and decades. Um, there's a huge uh, readership for uh, his works in, in India, um, and indeed in many other places through the world, America. Canada and Australia. So, you know, at, at times you, you think he's probably slightly more appreciated abroad than he is here. And the P.G. Woodhouse Society is international and uh, quite an organisation, I have to say. We've always we've always talked about wanting to do it in, in India from the very beginning, actually. And as it happens, the director is directed, he does The Woman in Black, and he's directed stuff in America, and our producer is... Uh, produced uh, in India, sorry, and our producers has produced uh, uh, quite a lot in India as well. So we, we, you know, we're hoping to do that. Uh, but uh, yes, I mean, I think there's a sort of some people say, oh, isn't isn't P.G. Woodhouse's stuff just about toffs? But it's, I think it's interesting that um, certainly in India, many other people, he's considered a subversive writer. And um, if you read them, I mean, basically his main theme in most of his books uh, is love actually, and certainly in his, his song, was uh, people falling in love and having but to his survive. Main, excuse me, the main character, one of the two main characters, Worst Bertie Worcester, is endlessly avoiding love, isn't he? He never gets involved with anyone. He's, he's terrified of getting involved with another woman, isn't he, in fact? Oh, yes. Well, when I mean love, it's... That's part of the comedy of it, you know. And actually trying to escape the possibility of love, which commitment. is... Trying to avoid yeah. commitment. But, uh, I mean, you also, you know, it, it's interesting. Some people have said, oh, it's just about a load of old toffs, isn't it? And you just read the books and, uh, and you realise that he's, you know, he's not always altogether kind about them. I mean, you know, you, you're laughing at their, very often their utter stupidity and goofiness. Um, and... But he's laughing fondly. There's no satire. There's no, he, no. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a gentle writer. 
And one of the one of the problems, actually, I think, in the past with dramatizing uh, P.G. Woodhouse is uh, the writing is very gentle and it's witty and it doesn't dramatize uh, that easily. And the very successful television series of, uh, that, that you were in with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, the right dramatizer Clive Exton uh, added quite a lot of kind of farcical uh, action to make to make them work uh, because the books are wonderful. But they're not naturally dramatic. Um, well, no, there was an excellent production with Steve Mangan and Matthew Fadian in the West End uh, uh, a few years ago, an adaptation, which was 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 great fun. It was a marvelous evening in the theatre. Woodhouse's writing actually makes you smile rather than roar with laughter, I think, and uh, uh, that can be quite difficult in uh, in the theatre. And I think the general uh, thing is, and uh, uh, this, I would hope that P.G. Woodhouse would uh, approve. Because uh, he was accused by George Orwell, I think, of, of having the comedian's ruling passion of wanting to get a laugh. And I don't think that's uh, something that, that anyone should be necessarily ac accused of. I There's think it's a wonderful wrong with it thing. At all, is there? What's and the play, seems, the play seems to do that. The play is an insight into the genius uh, of P.G. Woodhouse, but it also doesn't step back from actually trying to do the same, which is to give the audience a, 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 a fun evening. Uh, and uh, and to leave them, you know, the old-fashioned cliche, uh, sort of leaving with a smile on their face and whistling the tunes. So if we achieve that, I think uh, we consider it to be successful. You did that last night, Bob, very successfully. Yeah. Well, th thank you. Thank you. I, I did that. No, you did. No, you did. The, the audience just loved The five is in the post. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on and telling us all about it. And well done on a very well-received first night. And um, how lovely. And it's touring till the 29th of April, is that right? 29th of April, yes. We're the, our very last date, we're being sent to Coventry. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> which you must have is, uh, that gag, surely. No, I didn't. No, that was, that was sudden and rare inspiration for me. Um, but anyway, yes, it's till the 29th. We, we, we finished. But uh, yeah, it's lovely talking to you, Charlotte and Ed, too. Thanks very much for having us on. Yes, thank you. Very You're much. welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, before we go, it's International Women's Day on Wednesday, the 8th of March, and there's a lot going on to celebrate it. At the Affordable Art Fair in Battersea, which runs between the 9th and the 12th of March, there's going to be a landmark exhibition of living female artists and gallerists who are shaping the art world today. There's also, of course, the Big Women exhibition at the Colchester Gallery. That runs until the 18th of June. It's been curated by the painter Sarah Lucas. It showcases work by leading female artists, including her own and others, including Gillian Waring, Sue Webster, Maggie Hambling, Pam Hogg and many, many more. Finally, we want to alert you to the WOW Festival, or Women of the World Festival, that returns for its 13th year at the South Bank between the 10th and the 12th of March. Highlights include appearances from Mira Sayal, former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gilliard, the ever-popular podcasters Jane Garvey and Fee Glover, and comedian Cathy Burke. WOW is also going to be presenting an exclusive screening of Prima Facie, the West End stage hit starring Jodie Comer that explored how our legal system fails survivors of sexual assault with a discussion after it. The founder and chief executive of WOW is Jude Kelly, who set it up to celebrate the achievements of women and girls and confront global gender injustice. The festival started at London's South Bank Centre in 2010, where Jude was the artistic director for 12 years, and now it takes place in 30 locations across six continents. 
Jude is also a multi-award winning theatre director. She advises governments on the arts, education and social mobility. And we are delighted to have her with us today. Good morning, Jude. Morning. Nice to see you again, Ed. Well, it's great to have you with us, Jude. And the festival looks absolutely terrific. And I'm ashamed to say I've never been, but obviously it's growing and growing. So we're very excited to be telling our listeners about it. As there's so many interesting discussions going on this year and lots of fun stuff, can you just give our listeners some of the main highlights? <laughs> well, I mean, we've got Roxane Gay coming, who's, you know, one of the great uh, writers about race, gender, America and body, you know, that's kind of a big issue for women, the body. And then we've got uh, the, the Beverly Knight, who um, is starring in, the, in Sylvie, the, the show about the, um, the Pankhurst daughters and, 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 the, and her mother, Emmeline. Um, we've got Rachel Reeves coming to talk about w- the history of women and politics. We've got the Under Tens Feminist Corner, which every year gets completely sold out with boys and girls talking about playground politics, which is fascinating. And they're um, all under 10. Seriously. They're all under 10. You, you've no idea how incredibly complicated playground life is unless you are really listening in to eight-year-olds talking about what they're told they can and can't do as a girl or as a boy. It's it's absolutely amazing. You know, we, we think by the time you're 22, which is maybe when, you know, most young people start seriously thinking about what their belief systems are, you've, you've been so baked in the oven of, you know, of convention. But how does that work, Jude? Well, it's run by a sort of, if you like, a drama facilitator. Okay. Um, and they do it through storytelling and games and play acting, etc. And then and then questions. But, you know, it's it's really absolutely fascinating. And mm. I mean, we're very aware that, you know, children now talk about climate change. They talk about, you know, law and justice. So obviously they're going to talk about gender. Um, and um, it's just very interesting to hear how they police each other still. Mm. I mean, one of the great things about WOW is that we not only have, you know, the, 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 the famous, like, you know, you say Julia Gillard, it's 10 years since her famous speech in the Australian Parliament where she called out, you know, the, the, the misogyny. But you oh, also yeah, Charlotte, have... Charlotte was going on about that. That was... Uh... I was, oh, I was, was that... just, just before you came on, I, we, I was just reminding Ed how great that moment was. So now you're looking at sexism right in the face. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> amazing, I know. She, she, she was absolutely amazing. Um, but you know, those of you who, who've been to WOW before will know that we cover everything from, you know, alopecia. You know, there's lots of women with hair loss, yep. something that, you know, only ever usually talks about with men. Like, what does that mean for a woman to lose her hair? We're featuring Katie Hessel's amazing book, The Story of Art Without Men. And then, you know, very movingly, we've got Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe coming in conversation to talk about, you know, what it was like for her all those years in Iran and, and what freedom feels like having had that uh, traumatic history. The whole point, really, about WOW is to say that women and girls leave hugely various lives. We have a lot of fun. We do amazing things. You know, we come crashing and burning down for a variety of reasons. And we have an, so much in common. But throughout all of these things, we have to all admit, wherever you stand in the world, we don't have equality yet. And how that impacts on you personally, how it impacts on you professionally, domestically, all of that needs to be understood and shared. And when it is shared, you, for A, your burden's lighter, and B, you get more strategies for making change happen. It's not a quick 
process equality, whatever you're discussing. But um, it, but it can be fun. Human rights can be fun as well as fierce. The, the way it's organised is you can come for a day pass. So you mm-hmm. like you get a, a bit like a, you know, Glastonbury. I mean, you, yep. get, a, you get a festival ticket. You can yep. come all day Friday or all day Saturday or all day Sunday. Mm-hmm. And, and you can pick and choose from every single thing. I mean, in fact, it's quite useful to think of it like a rock festival where you can go to lots of different stages. You take your pick. You can um, swap over halfway through a session. And then there are the... The ticket items where you, you know, you buy just for that evening to see somebody talk or like, you know, Fee and Jane's podcast or whatever. And then we have a fantastic marketplace all over the ground floor where you can browse and buy things and talk to people. So there's a huge amount of informality. We have pop-up hula hooping and pop-up sport, pop-up weightlifting, music, etc. So even if you haven't bought a ticket and you want to just wander around and have a look, you're allowed. It's fine. You've put it on in 30 countries. I mean, that's a yeah. pretty incredible achievement. And presumably some of your locations are quite interesting and challenging in terms of women's rights. Oh, yeah, very. I mean, it, it's next week is in Pakistan. And um, it's been going there for about seven years. Uh, we just come back from Bangladesh. You know, those places are fighting for rights in a very immediate way. Of course, yeah. there are, you know, phenomenal histories of women doing great things in those countries, in every country, actually. But then the, the pushback can be can be brutal. Mind you, it can here too, you know. But a place like Pakistan that has tribal leaders who really uh, feel very hardline about mm-hmm. the roles that women and girls should play have to be contended with when you're talking about creating a modern democracy, which is what Pakistan is. Mm. Um, I mean, do you get protests and, and things like that or what happens? You can do. The very first woman who was going to organise WOW in Pakistan was assassinated. Oh, my um, God. Not only because she was going to do a WOW, but because she was running an arts centre that also had quite um, a liberal policy of talks and debates about issues. And, yeah, she was assassinated for that reason. Another time I went to Somaliland, and um, because... At South Bank Centre, I had, if you remember, celebrated the the Gay Marriage Act by doing a sort of 200 people getting married to, you know, over a weekend. I did this great big marriage ceremony for for all couples of all kinds. But when I was in Somaliland and uh, some of the um, religious leaders found that out, they got very nervous and they... So they suggested that they would preach against me on the Sunday and I had to leave. Generally speaking, around the world, the push for gender equality is absolutely unstoppable, which is why when you get places like Afghanistan yeah. pushing back, you know, it's because they kind of know it's unstoppable. Have you done one in Saudi? That's exactly what I'm no. <laughs> We haven't done one in Saudi. Our approach is this, you know, we never sort of go to a place and go, do you know what? You need a wow. We're not, <laughs> uh, we're not imperialists. We're not colonialists. We're not, you know, we're not like dumping ourselves into places and telling them what's needed. We wait for women to come to us and say, we really would like a wow. So, for example, we're doing a wow in the Seychelles. Seychelles is a place that has huge issues for women and employment. Uh, it has like many places, issues to do with women and, and drug abuse, but it also is trying more and more to get women to have a greater role in the environmental movement, which is a big thing for Seychelles tourism. So, you know, unexpected people come to us and say, this is what we would like. We have had a big invitation recently from Dubai to follow up WOW in Dubai. And, and I think the whole of the opening up of the Middle East 
We've done, we've had some great thinkings in Jordan. I think that it's inevitable that us or others will build that greater movement of, you know, global women's voices in, in every part of the world. It's absolutely inevitable. Oh, well, how absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on telling us about it. And um, what, a, what a great thing for our listeners to hear about. Thank you very, very much, Jude. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to see you all. Next, we're going to be talking about David Hockney and the wonderful new immersive show, Bigger and Closer, Not Smaller and Further Away at the new Lightroom in King's Cross. And don't think for a minute there is anything like the Van Gogh show that we featured a couple of summers ago. This is spectacularly new and very different, and we're going to be in conversation with the man behind the Lightroom, its chief executive, Richard Slady. So don't fail to tune in to hear all about it. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com, where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine, as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast, house guest with Carol Annette talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing. So please email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week. Goodbye.